Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Michael Squires, a politics editor at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. And joining me at our Capitol Bureau this week are... Ron Hansen. I cover the congressional delegation. Dan Nowicki. I'm the national political reporter. Mary Jo Pitzel. I cover child welfare issues. This week on the Gaggle, the state child welfare agency is disbanding its citizen oversight panels and bringing them in-house. And the Republican tax plan is marching toward passage. How will it impact Arizonans? But we start with Senator Jeff Flake, who supported that tax plan, thanks to assurances from Vice President Mike Pence, that he could be part of the talks on a DREAM Act. This is, as immigration activists believe, December may be their last shot to get it passed. Dan, what did uh, Jeff Flake want? Well, uh, as part of the negotiations, Flake was kind of a holdout on tax reform. It's kind of hard to believe that ultimately he would have ever voted against it, just given his his past record on that kind of uh, Republican tax issues. But one of the concessions he did get was uh, that he would be part of conversations related to finding a DACA solution. Uh, He got the assurance from Vice President Mike Pence, a longtime friend of Flake's. So uh, Flake's taken some ridicule. He's been said that he traded his vote on the tax bill for DACA, and I don't think that's the way it went down, but it was a concession that he did get. I mean, it's a way that he could signal this is a very serious issue to him. I think from Flake's perspective, he would like finding a fix for DACA to be part of his legacy. He's obviously got just one more year left in the Senate. He's not running for re-election. So, uh, on the Hill, Flake has put together a bipartisan, uh, it started out as a gang of six, uh, not totally clear who the members of the group are besides Flake, uh, the Republican, and Michael Bennett of the Democrat from Colorado. Uh, I, I hear that that group is expanding, and there was a big meeting planned for Wednesday on Capitol Hill, so the idea was, or, or the expectations that maybe something would be ready or at least uh, the, the direction would be known that they're going down by the end of the week. Ron, you talked to, to Senator Flake uh, right after he had uh, committed to vote yes on the, the tax plan. Did, did you get any sense of what he thought he got in return uh, as it relates to immigration? I know there was another, there was a more tax-related element there, but uh, on the immigration front? I, I think the big thing is he is in the room. He's part of the group that will help shape any kind of deal that might emerge from all of that. Um, really, he went to pains really to separate and say there's no agreement as to the any deal will have this or that uh, included in it. Um, I think he, he was sort of fessing up to the fact that this is not an ironclad guarantee that anything will emerge uh, from these discussions, and he was fairly honest about that. Um, and the truth is, Flake got on board the tax bill really after Republicans already had the votes they needed to pass it. So he didn't have a heck of a lot of leverage, and I think um, he got something that obviously means a lot to him. And he did cast it in economic terms, that this is something that if you want to spur economic growth, you need to do something to sort of change the dynamics with the economy and our workforce, and this is one way to help accomplish that. So. Uh, It's an issue he cares about. I think he did tie it nicely to the tax package as best he could. 
uh, given the hand he has. But, you know, in, given his lame duck status in a sense and, and the lateness of his, uh, his move to get on board the bill, it's about the best deal he seemed he could get. So part of the urgency here, Dan, is that uh, DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which is the Obama-era uh, executive action that allowed these young immigrants brought into the country illegally to get work permits and to be protected from deportation. They didn't have legal status, but they, there was this commitment that they wouldn't be deported as long as everything else was on the up and up. But they lose that on March 5th because uh, the Trump administration has said it's going to do away with that program. Um, and, and you had a story uh, in which we talked about Jeff Flake's involvement in this legislation. But the, the, the pro-immigration activists are saying they think this month is their like, last best chance to, to get this thing fixed before March 5th. Why are they saying that? Well, I think they just think if you get into the new year, it's going to slip away. Uh, they're going to be stuck uh, having to deal with Republicans and accepting probably a lot that they don't want. They think if they could tie it to maybe a continuing resolution on spending, somehow uh, attach DACA to that, uh, it would give them a, a better hand to play. Uh, I think it doesn't look like a deal is going to be uh, done in December. Uh, even people like Jeff Flake, who are, you know, an advocate for the for the DACA for dreamers, don't believe that's going to happen. Um, it's going to probably push into next year. And uh, obviously, the Republicans kind of showed their hand a little bit. Uh, Chuck Grassley of Iowa, uh, you know, unveiled their Republican version of a DACA bill, which includes DACA with all sorts of border security and enforcement measures, uh, kind of a crack, includes cracking down on sanctuary cities, includes Kate Law, Kate's Law named after Kate Steinle. So uh, she was uh, shot uh, by an uh, immigrant in San Francisco. It was a very sensational case. Uh, President Trump uh, mentioned it all through the campaign trail in 2016. Um, the, uh, the defendant in that case was recently found, uh, he was acquitted on, on the more serious charges related to that, um, obviously causing a controversy. But uh, so the sense is though that this Republican bill, why it would make Donald Trump very happy, kind of includes all of Trump's ideas. Uh, it's probably DOA in the Senate, uh, Flake makes the point that, you know, people have gotten used to this reconciliation environment where they only need, you know, 50 votes plus one. But when you talk about DACA or border security, you're back to the, uh, you know, 60 vote threshold. And they don't think that vote's going to get 60 votes in the Senate. So, Dan, uh, Jeff Flake caused a, a, a stir on Twitter, which in the real world may or may not actually be a stir, uh, by posting uh, a picture of check. We learned he still uses checks to spend money. Uh, that he, uh, with a donation to uh, the Democratic opponent to Roy Moore. What was the response to that? Well, it was, a, as you mentioned, a made-for-Twitter moment. Uh, he got a mixed reaction. Um, some people appreciated the gesture, obviously Flake. Republican sending a hundred dollar check to Doug Jones uh, with the 
written on the check, country over party, uh, in, in the memo of the check. Uh, some people said, well, you know, that's pretty cheap, Flake. You can probably afford to give more than $100, and what good is that going to do? Anyway, this late in the campaign, the the election is Tuesday, uh, December that, that 12th. That covers uh, the paper clips in a modern Senate campaign. Right, and then uh, others even said that, like, good job, Flake, you're going to probably generate a lot more donations for Roy Moore <laughs> by doing that. So um, it's kind of how it is on Twitter. You know, it's uh, nobody's ever happy with anything. Oh yeah, I always have to smile when when a Republican breaks from the the party and 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 does something like this. The 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 reactions is not like you know they never give him any credit. It's always like, but why didn't you you know like. Uh, Take, uh, you still voted for the tax bill, yeah, so yeah, exactly. you're right. still terrible. How, how did you allow Trump to run for president? Something like that. Um, but but looking at this, I mean, he's clearly, we've talked about this uh, a lot on this podcast, but him staking out this territory, that he's going to be this independent voice. He's going to say what he thinks right, and he doesn't care if it angers Trump or his allies. Uh, how how much more of this do you think we can expect to see over the next um, year plus that he's still in office? Well, I suspect that uh, he's gonna you're gonna see it for the rest of his his term. Uh, he's he's signaled that he's gonna give floor speeches as necessary, uh, criticizing various aspects of the Trump era. And uh, so yeah, you're gonna see Flake. Uh, you know, some people call it peacocking uh, on Twitter on the national media and. Some people even say he's, he's setting himself up for a presidential race, possibly. Ron Hansen, you've been covering the Republican tax plan and also looking at some of the potential impacts for Arizonans. I think for a lot of us, it's, you know, obviously we want good policy broadly, but, you know, also... What's this going to do to my tax bill when it all shakes out? Yeah, so I think that as it relates to the taxes, uh, the the one area that will be sort of especially relevant to um, local taxpayers and how they come out of this is going to be uh, the treatment of state and local taxes, um, known as SALT. And the uh, since the federal income tax was instituted in 1913, We've had this kind of provision to sort of allow taxpayers to uh, deduct that money that they pay to states and localities. And um, under this tax plan in either the House or the Senate, it would uh, put limits on the amount of money that can be subject to that. And so the bills need to be reconciled and, and unified, and so the final shape of it remains in flux. But... One thing uh, that we do see is um, this cap at about $10,000 on state and local taxes. Arizonans are largely unaffected by this. Uh, there's no county, there's no uh, area that has on average taxes uh, for that um, that approach $10,000 that I could find from the IRS data. Um, but this is a real issue in places like California, New York, New Jersey, uh, some of the pricier coastal regions where state and local taxes uh, can be quite significant, even for people who aren't what we would think of as especially wealthy. So other aspects of the bill um, appear to be relatively uniformly dispersed in terms of 
the way that corporate income is taxed or the way that individuals would be impacted or deductions would uh, either be expanded or done away with whenever they figure out what bill they want to go with on that approach. But uh, then there are other aspects of the tax plans that really don't have direct uh, application to taxes but would affect Arizonans, uh, and that would be when we see programs trimmed when the revenue that is expected to be lost with these tax plans uh, would lead to possible program cuts. And that's where we start talking about things like Medicare uh, in particular um, or, and you know other health spending, along with other things that are just sort of low-profile federal programs that um, would result in a loss of uh, program services to people. Arizona tends to be a poorer state. Uh, more broadly, so anything that trims the availability of these kinds of program services would probably have a, a greater impact on Arizona than what you might find in other uh, more affluent states. So, uh, all, all tax policy to a degree is a bit of social engineering. I mean, if you want to give people a deduction for interest to buy houses, what are they going to do? They're going to buy houses. But this one seems to be more partisan when it comes to state and local, local taxes than than anything that I can recall seeing, and certainly correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost like it's, uh, some people have said it's weaponized against blue states. Do you see it that way? You know, it's hard not to see it as having this almost punitive quality about it at the moment. Now, again, as we do this, the the House and Senate still have their separate bills, and, and so nothing is final on any of this at this point. But there's no question when you look at, in particular, the SALT provisions that this is something that would impact a lot of uh, taxpayers who live in Democratic-leaning states. And, and explain why that, why that is. Well, these are states, when we talk about like New Jersey, um, they are you know, infamous for having especially high property taxes. And when you talk about California, you're, you're talking about a state that has the highest income tax uh, schedule in the country. These are states that have sort of um, figured out that the way that they want to provide government services, the level and, and the nature of what they offer um, is, is part of that social compact. And, and their taxpayers have been able to deduct those expenses as part of their federal uh, income taxes, um, again, since the institution of the federal income tax. The, the fact that now those kinds of expenditures might be capped in terms of how much you could deduct from your federal return has a downstream effect of incentivizing states to limit those kinds of expenses on taxpayers if this comes into uh, final form. So uh, this could have broader impact on, for example, public education expenses. This could uh, limit the amount of money that you make available for things like road construction or other buildings. So it's it's not done, but it's also sort of telegraphing a, a direction that suggests that the state and local picture now will have to be part of the federal tax equation in a way that really feels like um, for those states that have charged higher taxes, they may have to see if they've priced themselves out of the market. So is it uh, fait accompli that this is going to happen, this is going to pass? It feels like there's no question that some sort of tax legislation will get to the president's desk. 
the salt component of it also seems relatively well developed uh, compared to some of the other areas of the tax bill that are still pr pretty significantly apart in terms of the House and the Senate versions. Um, this one may get modified. I know that they're looking at uh, allowing the $10,000 cap to be um, put fully into, say, things like state income tax, uh, for example, which would be less harmful for Californians, for example, than to um, roll it all up into one one big exemption. So it's it's something that may be made less um, harmful or less unpopular to those folks. But uh, my guess is that it, we're probably likely to see some sort of uh, um, limit placed on people who tend to be in democratic states. So, Mary Jo, you reported that the State Department of Child Safety is disbanding its citizen review panels, and it's bringing that in-house. Uh, first of all, what do those panels do? Those panels are uh, created to provide oversight and review of policies and procedures at um, the Department of Child Safety, which is the Child Welfare Agency. They started off looking um, primarily at cases where children died while in DCS custody or had near deaths. And then in recent years, or yeah, in the recent years at the agency's urging, they've tried to expand to more thematic explorations such as you know, what are we doing about substance-exposed newborns or what's happening with medical neglect? How do we categorize that? How do we identify that? So they come to be sort of as a, as a nationwide push, correct? This wasn't an Arizona idea. No, this was uh, part of an amendment to a federal child welfare law. You know, if you want, if you want the money that comes with that, you got to have these citizen review panels. So what's motivating the move in-house? Um, the agency says that they're streamlining things. It's um, they're they're going to hire somebody to coordinate the many various committees that advise and provide oversight for DCS. So they will fold this under that umbrella. That is scheduled to happen um, in early in the new year. And what, what are are there any concerns about? this lack of oversight from outside the agency, now they're bringing it in-house? Yeah, th um, what we're hearing from people who have served on these panels is that their concern is that once you bring it in-house, well, who's going to, who will appoint them? Well, DCS will appoint them. Who will decide what information to give the panels? DCS will decide. So it becomes very insular. Uh, as they are currently constituted, there is an outside group um, this time it's uh, ASU School of Social Work that um, recruits members, vets them, and puts them on the panels. So you're going to lose that sort of outside view. And these are a lot of people who are involved in the child welfare system, others who have really don't know much about it, but they understand government. One of the co-chairs um, has been a court administrator for a long time, so she gets some of the ins and outs of government, but she brings a fresh set of eyes because she hasn't been mired in all the child welfare, you know, lingo for years. You've mentioned that some of the people who have been on these panels are critical of this move, saying that this is this is not going to be transparent, that, that like, as you mentioned, there's going to be a lot of DCS control over the whole process. W what does DCS, DCS say in response to that? They say, well, no, we're going to, you know, we will be bringing in outside people, and we have a lot of people providing oversight on us, and they sent out a list of all the agencies or the entities that oversee them, you know, many of which are required by law, like, you know, the Joint Legislative Budget Committee. Um, I will note that there was a DCS uh, 
oversight panel that sunsetted at the end of 2016. We've never seen their final report, and a new committee has never been um, reconstituted. So there is actually some lessening of this outside look. So uh, DCS is often criticized about its lack of transparency. Is this, how does this not contribute to that view of that agency? Well, I think we do have to wait and see what they come up with. Um, you know, who, how do they constitute these panels? And the direction from the agency has been rather vague. I mean, I, I think they're going to recreate these in-house, but they said that they're reevaluating their role. So I don't know how much flexibility they have under the federal law to do that. Uh, but to give them the benefit of the doubt, I think we need to see who shows up on these panels. In the meantime, there are a couple of other advisory panels that they are creating, and um, I'm going to be taking a look at, you know, who's picking the people on there, and are they, uh, who has a, that kind of oversight, and is it being handpicked by top agency directors, which isn't always good for transparency. For our final segment, I'm asking whether you've started your Christmas shopping yet. I have begun with one gift, but since we're out here at the Capitol, I think I will wander over to the Capitol Museum and look for some Arizona-centered gifts for my friends. How about you, Dan? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uncharacteristically, I've got most of it done already. Wow. Ron? I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> I may have to follow Mary Jo to the museum. <laughs> and, w and what is that special gift you're out hunting for? Oh, Goodness. Tell the people at home. Yeah, we're uh, trying to find a Vampirina uh, dollhouse. If, if that's at the Capitol Museum, Mary Jo, please let me know. Listeners, if you have a good deal on one, contact Ron Hanson. <laughs> so that's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at MG Squires. And me at Mary J. Pitzel, P-I-T-Z-L. And I'm at Dan Nowicki, just like my byline. And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Thanks to the politics team, and our production team is Jojo Huckaba and Haley Sanchez. Please subscribe to the show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.